Hey, this is C. Fox. Welcome to a very special episode of Power of X-Men. Enter now the age of apocalypse, Shiga, with your hosts, Dayspring and Scott Free. The name's Cable. Remember it. And the only people who can stop Apocalypse are the mutants known as Dayspring, Scott Free, and Michelle. This is Captain America, and we need to defeat Apocalypse. Our guest today is an Eisner-nominated author of over 75 comics and children books, of which include Archer and Armstrong Forever, The Justice League Saves Christmas, Pokemon, the ABC book, Super Mario, here we go, I can't do Super Mario, (laughs) Spider-Ham in Hollywood Mayhem, Party and Pray, which he did with Steve Orlando, shout out to Steve Orlando, we just had him on the podcast, and of course, the latest volume of X-Men 92. Please welcome Steve Fox. Hello, thanks for having me. It, real weird to hear the Eisner thing out loud, but still still processing that news. How do you even get that news? Who Do you just find out the day they release the nominations or does like your agent call you and tell you what you got? <laughs> so cute that you think I have an agent. Um, <laughs> so- well, uh, you know, maybe this is is uh, spilling the secrets a little bit, but they they do actually give you a little bit of a heads up. Um, but it goes to the publisher, and AfterShock chose to preserve the surprise for us. So um, the day the announced, so I knew Department of Truth had a couple uh, nominations coming, uh, and I was looking forward to that. And then uh, the day of Haas, the letterer um, who also runs Panel by Panel, he's a good friend of mine, and he sent me a screenshot, and I legitimately thought. Uh, he had photoshopped it to like mess with me, <laughs> um, but it, it was real. So there we go. Well, congratulations Thank so you. much on that. Doing a deep dive into your background and your career. First of all, I'm a, I'm obsessed with you. Paste magazine, <laughs> RIP to that comic book section. Yeah. I thought we had a pretty good go of things for a couple of years there, but unfortunately uh, SEO felt otherwise. <laughs> I am picturing a couple of years ago with Ian from Slayer Fest 98 when he was working at BuzzFeed, you being at Pace Magazine. I mean, you guys must have owned the fucking town. <laughs> <laughs> that is an extremely generous read of things. But uh, it, I will say, you know, my, my time at Pace, I, I sometimes forget about it um, just because I'm thankful to be very busy. Um, but it did put me in contact with a lot of people who have gone on to become good friends of mine and collaborators. I mean, that's how I met Steve Orlando in the first place. And I've been cursed with that friendship ever since. Okay. I, I know I'm, I can speak for Scott on this. We had Steve Orlando a couple of weeks ago on Cinco de Mayo. And <laughs> he was a riot. He, uh, he, he's a good time gal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He was holding like this big, what was he holding, Scott? Like a big cup of like, he called it coffee, but you know it was tequila in there. <laughs> that was not, it was like Kahlua or tequila or something. Yeah, there may have technically been coffee in it, but <laughs> it certainly wasn't the only ingredient. And then I, I was such a div. I didn't know that he was writing Spider-Man 2099. And then he was here like, yeah, I got big plans for the X-Men 2099. And I fucking love X-Men 2099. <laughs> so I literally, I had like that, like that blinking guy moment where I was like, what now? What now? 
He showed me some of the finished art today. I, I forget if it's been announced who's drawing it, so I, I won't say if you don't already know off the top of your head, but uh, it looks amazing. And he got to introduce a lot of new cast members, so I think it's going to be a fun time for folks. Yeah, he told us, Scott, there's going to be a new Phoenix, a new Cyclops, North Star. And North Star, that is going to mm-hmm. be awesome. And then yeah. he he sort of alluded off, off interview some things he was going to do to one of my favorite characters ever and i was like oh no <laughs> like futurama style so we love steve very much but your career other steve it's just incredible first of all like i'm obsessed with x-men 92 i'm also obsessed with the planet neptune and you wrote about the planet neptune <laughs> and when i was going through your bibliography yeah my kids book uh history is colorful and varied and i did do several nonfiction books about planets which uh never thought that would have been in the cards for me but i i learned a lot <laughs> in the process i have a nonfiction book about uh the history of plant life on earth coming out That's next incredible. year so uh, i learn with the reader when i do those <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait, what's the process like for something like that? You just have to like do a deep dive research for all of that? Yeah, pretty much. Do you get to interview like botanists or astronomers? You definitely think my career is more more interesting than this. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I mean, so that came about because I started doing work with a company called Capstone, which does um, some graphic novels and they do a lot of educational stuff and it's kind of direct to school and libraries. Um, And so I did like sort of a, edutainment series for them um, with like an alien teacher who taught kids about different space concepts and that led into doing some like goosebumps style spooky comics for them and stuff like those nonfiction planet books and the plant book Um, but yeah I just kind of do the research on my own and thankfully there are fact checkers to make sure I'm not passing on terribly inaccurate (laughs) science information to children um but yeah you know I, I learn from them and sometimes i pull from them to do my my fiction elsewhere god bless managing ed and fact checkers they're like the underwriters <laughs> of the book publishing industry yes we would be lost without them what did you do for another day i helped edit that book uh so my first job out of college was as an editor at random house uh children's books and David uh, had worked with my boss at the time, Nancy Hinkle, for quite a few years. And um, they had done every day together, which was quite a big deal in the YA world at the time. And yeah, uh, Nancy and I worked on another day and then she left and I took over a lot of the project along with um, one of my other coworkers, Melanie Cheka. Uh, yeah, no, David's great. He's, a, he's down at Scholastic and it was fun to get to work with him. And I had actually, when I was in college, when I'd taken some courses on like children's literature, we had read David Levithan books. So to then graduate and start working with some of the authors I had just learned about in college was, was a cool experience for sure. I think that's one of like the best benefits of working in book publishing in the city because like I was reading David Sedaris when I was at FSU and then I went to Hachette and obviously Little Brown publishes him. And it was so insane to see him and Amy Sedaris just like walk around the office <laughs> and try not to like be a fanboy about that. But it, it, it's one of the few perks you get starting off, <laughs> especially you're you were an editorial assistant. God bless you. 
I'm so sorry. <laughs> like on well, behalf of the book publishing industry, <laughs> we're sorry. Sure. Yeah. And there are, uh, thankfully things have improved and there's definitely a lot of room for improvement still left. I had a, a pretty easy experience. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I also got to meet like Mark Brown who created Ar- Arthur. That was a crazy deal. Um, Anita Lobel, who was married to Arnold Lobel, who did Frog and Toad, which is like the gay icons of my youth, um, and Jerry Spinelli. So it was, it, it was a very cool first job out of college. Uh, I'm also very grateful I no longer work in an office. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Steve, our first official question is, why is Jubilee the best X-Man ever? Because she is such a fun reader surrogate and she's very tied to an era. I think that's so it's worked for her and against her because Kitty or Pixie or Armor or any of the characters who've kind of fulfilled that like reader entry point to the X-Men, none of them are tied to their debuts the same way that Jubilee is to the late eighties, early nineties. And I think in the time that made her so fun. And then as time went on, I think some creators struggled with how to keep her relevant while staying true to who we met in 1989. Um, But she's just a little brat. I mean, she's Bart Simpson with, with mutant powers. And that's kind of like, (laughs) that's a fun dynamic. And the other, I was, I thought about this question more seriously than I probably needed to, but I love love that. We love love, overthinking here. (laughs) Yeah. I love Kitty pride. One thing about Kitty is that she starts off, as a very relatable reader surrogate and then she becomes a ninja and she becomes a high-tech you know uh, computer technician and she crosses multiverses and 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 so i I think in some ways jubilee is the more accessible reader surrogate because she's just this little punk kid who thinks the x-men are cool and has nowhere else to go and is gonna rollerblade around and fight juggernaut and and do what you know preteens want to do my, my eyes are about to roll behind my head right now because I have said this about Kitty Pride. I think Kitty Pride is always what the writers want her to be. She can have her big Alan Davis hair. She can have like, let me speak to your manager haircut. You know, <laughs> she goes from Peter Quill to Peter Wisdom to Colossus. And and I, I've always wanted her to be a bit more focused, kind of like how she is right now in the Krakoan age. I, I love this Kitty in the Krakoan age, but Kate, Kate, I'm smack. (laughs) But I'm glad you mentioned Pixie and armor as a sidebar, because I think a lot of people forget they were ingenues for the X-Men and Warren Ellis tried to develop armor. I mean, I first learned about Twitter through armor in that (laughs) astonishing X-Men reboot with Warren Ellis and Pixie had, I mean, we had Pixie strikes back. Yeah. We had, she had her own, um, she had a big story in Mike Carey's X-Men Age of X. Well, that was probably at the tail end of her of her minute. But I loved when she was a more demonic-ish character. And she could yeah. toggle back in the way that Archangel could. But they never followed up on that. I think the tough thing is that since Pixie and Armor overlapped some, neither one got the full spotlight. And we've seen that. I mean, Mero was kind of a, a, a similar character role in the late 90s. She was like the, she was the Jason Todd of the the young (laughs) X-Men entry points. And you did not just compare Mero to (laughs) Jason Todd. And even uh, Surge kind of seemed like she was going to be in that role for a minute uh, when Academy X was going. 
Uh, and I love all those characters, and I think cool cool stuff has been done with all of them. And then Quentin, really, Quentin took it over when Jason Aaron was on the book. Um, I think that's one of the fun things about the X-Men is they almost always have that younger reader surrogate character, um, but none have had the permanence of Kitty and Jubilee. Well, even during... Spoiler alert for book club. We're going to be reading Generation X at Scott's <laughs> And we, when we were reading the Phalanx Covenant, Jubilee was so snarky to like yeah. Emma. <laughs> I mean, what did she say? Like, I'm trying to remember the line. I'm going to butcher it. But she says something to Emma like, hey, Frosty, you're going to let us die like the Hellions. I was like... <laughs> First of all, you do not call Miss Emma Grace Frost frosty. Like, child, learn your lesson here. Yeah, like, like you're, you're, you're 12. Like, <laughs> calm down a little bit. Like, wrangle it in there, Jubilee. But I think, Steve, to what, exactly what you are just saying, that's, that's who she is. That's what's so defining of the character. And it's, you know, obviously Kitty pushing back against Emma is a defining part of her character. But, of course, Jubilee, again, is going to have the Bart Simpson side of it. <laughs> And there's, a, there's a really great issue. I, I will say one thing. I am terrible with issue numbers. That is not a part of my brain. Um, but there's a great... Me and Scott are like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't even bother. Don't worry. There, there's a great issue um, fairly early on in, in Jubilee's history um, where she spends almost all of it with Professor Xavier. And he had recently regained the ability to walk but he's about to lose it and they like spend time out on the mansion grounds and then she has to like help him back to the mansion so i think that's the the fun balance to how bratty she can be is that there's a soft center and there's a real heart and passion there um but that that's like the thorniness of the character and that's probably why she's had fewer sustained runs than kitty has because i think kitty's character was so well established from the beginning with chris claremont because she was such a focus that jubilee i I don't think she always gets to be as multifaceted as she could be before i kick it off to you scott i just want to say one final thing about her shadiness when scott and gene got engaged and they were at the thanksgiving table and scott was like we have some gene and i have some exciting news and jubilee says what did she pick a code name like <laughs> the fucking read there to our god queen Jean. Anyways, I, I'm sorry, Scott. You know I had to throw in Jean. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Well, well, like really divisive Jubilee topic. How did you feel about Jubilee as a vampire? <laughs> so I think it was a bold swing, and I respect all my fellow creators. <laughs> uh, and okay. I have some some feels on that because in issue two of X-Men 92, it mirrors obviously Moira's and Moira's narration when she's going through her life, she goes and through the lost years. And we saw obviously (laughs) the Phoenix five. And if I was trying to line them up, I would be like, does vampire Jubilee line up as the lost years? You know, if that's your, your read of it, who am I to say (laughs) otherwise? Uh, I mean, I'll say like, I loved Frankencastle. Like I love a, a real bold swing with a character. And I think that was definitely an attempt to do something different and i was really happy when christina strain gave her powers back in generation x (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm a long suffering uh, Ghost Rider fan, and I mm. I went through Cosmic Ghost Rider and all of that, and I appreciated it. But I'm I'm glad we're we're back. So I, <laughs> I, res- I respect that. Yeah, um, we don't want Stephanie Meyer anywhere near Jubilee. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, like like spinning out of that, how how did like the idea of um, X Men '92 come about? Yeah, so uh, Jordan White is the head of the X-Men line at Marvel right now. And Woo-hoo, he and I, love I, Jordan. I love Jordan. Um, I actually interned for him a little over 10 years ago. So we've known each other for a long time, uh, stayed in touch over the years. And after he read Spider-Ham, uh, he thought I'd be a good fit for this. And of course, it's the 30th anniversary of X-Men 92. So that's, that was the genesis of doing a miniseries in the first place. And as far as it being an adaptation of the Krakoan era, that was an offhand idea Jordan had. It was presented to me as you can run with this. You can give us other ideas. It's by no means a mandate, but I love the Krakoan era so much. I have so much affection and respect for the creators involved. I know many of them personally. And one of my favorite things about the animated series was that it adapted classic storylines from the X-Men and made it fit the cartoon cast, made it fit the cartoon format. Uh, So I just thought that was such a fun challenge to try to do for Krakoa and to make it as 90s as possible. A a lot of it translates directly, but you also have, you know, with Jonathan Hickman and Tom Muller, it's such a forward-thinking design aesthetic and it's so now it wouldn't make sense for 92. So that's really where a lot of the fun comes in is figuring out, okay, this is how this is depicted. This is kind of the sci-fi concepts we're playing with in 2022. How do we slam that 30 years in the past? Um, so it's, it's just been a blast to do. And I think I sent Jordan the outline in like 24 hours later, or it's just send over like a 4,000 word document detailing the whole series. Uh, like as soon as, as I was off to the races, I knew what I wanted to do. So when we spoke with Chris Sims in the fall, he mentioned that when they were kicking off X-Men 92, they were, they were really careful in that they couldn't reference the cartoon because obviously the Fox Disney deal had just not happened. Mm-hmm. Is that, that's obviously not a thing anymore. It's a little complicated. I don't, I don't think I'm talking out of school to say that, you know, ultimately this is a discrete continuity heavily yeah. inspired by the cartoon Got and it. how that serves us both is I don't have to know anything about 97. I can just be excited about it as a fan. They may end up doing their own version of Krakoa. I genuinely have no idea. Wait, you um, have no idea what's happening on X-Men 97? How do no, we eject you now? <laughs> what's the entire point of having you here? <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, sadly, no. Ins- I, did, I did know about it before uh, it was public knowledge, so that was a fun secret oh, to have cool. for like a month and a half. Um, but no, it's, it's it's its own standalone thing. And I love the run that Chris and Chad Bowers and, and um, their artistic collaborators did. I think they're products of very different circumstances, though, like you said, because when they did it in 2015 or 2016, we had no idea there would ever be a revival of the TV show. Nothing like that was on the horizon. So they take it to really wild places. You know, they end with like everyone on Earth becoming a mutant because there was no cartoon coming down the pipeline fandom interest and nostalgia was a little different place so this one you know i've said before that like this is inspired by the cartoon it's inspired by the early 90s directly 
but it's also kind of inspired by like the X-Men on our t-shirts and lunch boxes and underwear and toys. Like the, the version of the X-Men you have in your head in Amber, when someone says like, you know, nineties X-Men, that's what I wanted to put on the page. I mean, I think that's exactly what come across. Like Sorry, my dog is <laughs> no, wait, wait, what's your dog's Cam- name? Cora. Hey, Cora, what's going on? <laughs> She probably wants her dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're keeping your dad from giving you <laughs> She can wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, one of my questions was going to be if you ever thought about picking up where Chris Sims and the entire team left off with Earth X. Yeah, you know, we, was... we debated it, but ultimately, since five years had passed and we wanted this to be accessible to anyone who was excited about the new cartoon and wanted to check this out, it felt like the right move to kind of set it a ways after that. There's nothing in this series to say that didn't occur, but you also don't have to have read the, the prior one to follow. There could be a, a lost story to be told in between the two someday. <laughs> Love that. And there's a, there's a bit of a nod to it too. In, the, in issue two, when you do see Jubilee's other lives, the version of Dracula she's with when she's a vampire is the Dracula scene in 92 not the dracula scene in the main oh i didn't pick that up here i am uh, saying i'm such a diehard x-men 92 stan <laughs> and i even pick up that easter and i love easter yeah. eggs so that was like a little i mean there are so many like I, i'm sure many of them are only for me and, and salva espen at this point but it, I, I could certainly do a fun annotated version someday or like a very long twitter thread ro- rolling through all of them yeah well we saw a lot of them even in this issue but even the previous yeah. issue before and i love that shit and you I knew I was going to love the series and the series was in good hands when I saw the Dazzler from the Fleer Ultra as a poster. <laughs> yes. That's I'm a it. huge, huge Dazzler fan. I, I've said elsewhere, like the, the most bittersweet part of doing this series is that to remain truthful to 1992, neither Emma nor Dazzler could really play that big of a role. Like they didn't matter that much in the cartoon. Emma was in a coma in 1992 and Dazzler was in Mojo World. So it's like, I couldn't force them to play a bigger role, um, but they are, you know, as a homosexual, they are my favorite characters. <laughs> so It's funny. We were talking to Larry Houston last year and I asked him about the song that Dazzler sings in the oh. Dark Phoenix song. Found myself a party, don't know what <laughs> to do. I feel your body heat. And I was like, there has to be, you had to have recorded a full track for this. <laughs> Where is it? He did not remember, but still. Sitting in a vault somewhere waiting yeah. to be uncovered. <laughs> With the Scooby-Doo des- designs of the, it's in the fox. It's in the Fox Bowl. Um, <laughs> Keeping you want to keep it like focused on like 92 and the 90s. Like, how do you decide on the council? Yeah, well, so first off, they're actually not called the Quiet Council because that was a very Hickman-esque term. Um, so they are called the Inner Circle, which is the name the cartoon used for the Hellfire Club because they weren't going to say Hellfire on Fox Saturday morning cartoons. Okay, but that scene of Emma being like, the inner circle and drinking water. <laughs> I'm like, that better be vodka, Emma. I also love that they still were like, yeah, she can have lingerie. We just can't say hell. So yeah. it's really um, American uh, broadcasting priorities are a, a oh. fascinating history topic all don't, their own. Don't yeah, you just so- miss the 90s sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> 
cite Sailor Moon where Sailor Neptune and Sailor Uranus were cousins and yes. they came off across as more incestuous than very, anything. Very close cousins. <laughs> um, but no, I chose them because I wanted to stay true to what was going on in the early 90s and to what we had seen on the cartoon. So that's why Callisto's there. That's why Omega Red is there. Um, and also characters that I knew I wasn't really going to get a chance to touch on in other places, like Archangel's part of the inner circle. Um, he's always been one of my favorite characters, but I knew like we weren't going to be able to get into, you know, X Corp and, and other things that we've seen of the 616 version. So it, it was a combination of who makes sense for these roles, like who would would conceivably fill these roles. Like, I'm not just going to throw adam x on the council because it's funny like i you know i'd want it to be a character who seems like they might reasonably be on the council so um, follow-up question is adam x going to be in the series so some of us are big fans adam x does not meet my criteria but he is so 90s that i had to put him in there so you Thank will get you. to see adam x uh he is one of the the handful of characters i bent the rule for uh just because you can't really do a 90s book without him <laughs> like right. he's too emblematic i i still wear a backwards hat because i thought it was the coolest <laughs> thing i saw in like 1993 when i started reading x-force and i was like this guy <laughs> but yeah so it was like who's who actually fits who do i want to touch on that i'm not going to get to do other places and I'll, I'll throw out a little spoiler is a few seats end up needing to be replaced over the course of the run so the the inner circle you meet in issue two is not the inner circle you'll see by the time we get to issue five okay can we get fabian cortez or nate gray on that council <laughs> or excuse <laughs> me on, on that inner circle you'll see fabian uh he oh. shows up for sure uh well he already has yeah. right yeah in this issue yeah. yeah but he gets to do some stuff outside of the five as well so I love that. They're around. No Nate Gray, though. He he does beat the cutoff a little too much. How do I eject you? My <laughs> God. <laughs> Steve, I was so excited. <laughs> Listen, by the end of the run, so I, I counted. Um, so Salva Espen's been such an amazing collaborator, and he's been so up for cameos. And by the end of the run, he'll have drawn over 160 Marvel characters. Oh, wow. So... If they existed before 1992 or they appeared on that cartoon, you are probably going to see them in the book. Oh, I'm asking about Nate Gray and you said before 1992. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. Yeah. I, I thought just after 92, for whatever reason, I heard it wrong. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. So Nate obviously does not make sense, but I'm glad you made the exception for Adam X. Yes. The rule I'm was before 92 or appeared on the show. Like for okay. instance, random was created in 93, I think, but he does end up making it onto the show and he is also so 90s. So, you know, random will show up, but Nate Gray, unfortunately, uh, is going to have to hang out in his own, his own universe for a while longer. <laughs> he missed a cutoff by two years. Oh. Womp womp. <laughs> I mean, that there goes my question. Like I'm, I'm a huge, huge chamber fan mm. as like a, a former, like depressed teenager. And now just, <laughs> Now hit hit the eject button, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Chamber is one of my favorite characters. He, I would absolutely pitch something with him in the main line. He would, he's on my like bucket list of characters to work with. But again, it's like Generation X feels like such the turning point in the '90s. Yeah. Like it's a different kind of '90s. It's now pre-millennial '90s rather than like post-80s '90s. So had to leave the red jumpsuits out of it. 
But you you had a shout out to Generation X here in one of Jubilee's lives. She goes, go get them Generation X, something like that, yes. right? So yeah. I still want to include the nods here and there. And, and actually, um, so let me think of the delicate way to say this. In that panel, you see a couple, you see kind of her like future team a little mm. bit. And at one point, one of them was Monet. Um, <gasps> but there was a little bit of a honest miscommunication and, and we ended up with a different version of that panel still great and you know no one no one reading it is going to know unless they listen to this but there was a version of that panel at one point that had monet in her in-plate form oh my god you have broken the internet with that <laughs> but you already have enough easter eggs in here like yeah i figured it, it wasn't worth throwing down the gauntlet for <laughs> the, the pool scene with colossus and jubilee i mean that's that's iconic that's x-men <laughs> jim lee vibe like for days <laughs> there's also on that same page there's a nod to pride of the x-men which was the cartoon pilot they did oh. before x-men the animated series oh that 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 pilot needs no introduction i wore <laughs> out that vhs Larry houston when he was on we ended up talking to him for three hours an hour <laughs> and a half was basically all about pride of the x-men and he did confirm that Gene at one point was considered, Gene and Bobby were considered for the pilot, but Ooh. were swapped out. Uh, Pride of the X-Men is super formative to me. That's my first exposure to the X-Men um, alongside like the very early Toy Biz action figures. Um, so I saw Pride of the X-Men before I ever saw the animated series. And I remember thinking like, when is Dazzler going to show up? Like, why, why isn't Dazzler here? Like, is the, it, the Simpsons episode where uh, they, they introduce, uh, oh, who's the dog that they introduced? Oh, uh, uh, Poochie. Poochie. And yeah. when Homer's like, whenever Poochie's not on screen, characters should be asking, where's Poochie? That was me with Dazzler. I was like, when is she going to show up on this damn cartoon? Because I was so influenced by Pride of the X-Men. Larry was telling us that he always wanted to sneak in cameos, as I'm sure you've heard him say countless times. But the design for Dazzler, he did it first in that Mojo World episode yeah. because he knew he wanted to reuse that model later on for her. And even though she's blonde in her first appearance and she goes <laughs> on to be a redhead, but we love Allison Blair here quite a bit. And she gets some love from you here. I know. I know yes. you can't really use her, but she appears in a couple panels here. So we're very happy. And she shows up several times throughout the series. I, I really have the strongest. I have a Cyclops tattoo, but Dazzler is the one I've always like wanted to get. I, at some point, I will probably end up with like a full, full ribcage Dazzler tattoo. <laughs> Stop it. That especially from her Dazzler one, that oil painting like, oh, <laughs> that would be a great tat. Um, what, what's the homage for this panel right here? Is that is there an Easter egg there? Is that well, like, is that Goblin Force Maddie? So pose? on the panel you're referencing from issue two, uh, we have Emma Frost in her Diamond Heart look. Mm -hmm. We have um, Evan Sabiner Genesis. Yeah, uh, and then we have who I called Cable with a K. So it's the hybrid of Cable and Krakoa. Yeah, uh, and Wild Thing from the MC2 universe. And then I was calling that character Ghost Phoenix. Mm. Patterned mm. a bit after Maddie from Mutant X. Yeah, um, but you know it's left open. They're unlabeled, so people can can apply their own read to them. But that's of course referencing the powers of Ten Page where um apocalypse has his like final horseman yeah so just the little nods here and there 
Thank you for that. I mean, I first I didn't read that was Emma until now, and I'm like, oh yeah, please do a spinoff book with this team right now. <laughs> well, like, team. When, when else are we ever going to see the Diamond Heart look again? <laughs> so I mean, like, it's criminal that we have this seen in it. here. <laughs> I always like that code name. I mean, I get that you know she's never not going to be Emma Frost. Like Jean and Emma, you're just never going to get any name to stick uh, over their actual name. And I think, you know, Rachel to an extent too. Um, but I, I was like, Diamond Heart, this actually fits pretty darn well. I was going to ask you um, about, you know, like like the broader world since, you know, Marvel in the 90s. And we had, you know, also animated series like Spider-Man mm-hmm. and stuff. But I just realized, and this this breaks my heart, that Ben Riley did not come back for the Clone Saga until 1994. Yep. So no Ben Riley. Um, no, Ben Riley. I really thought about pushing it. So, you know, all the solicits are out now. So, you know, yeah. issue four involves the gala. Um, and you're going to get to see a lot of faces from around the Marvel Universe. I was very close to pushing it to just have it be Ben anyway, because he's so 90s and I, I like yeah. him so much. But it was off by like just too many years to justify. Oh, I, we love Ben Riley here. I'm sad. You, Scott, you do a great Ben Riley cosplay. Yeah, but not not the one with the hoodie because like mm. it's it's sweaty and like nobody <laughs> wants that. Um, also, I do like that the emerging theme of this podcast is you telling me a character you love and me telling you they're not in the book. They're not there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it, it segues nicely into our next question. Like, who who in your series, uh, who in this series is your favorite character to write? That's a tough one. I think. Wolverine and Rogue feel like they come most naturally because Cal Dodd and Lenore Zahn, like... I was in Chelsea Market today and she, someone who looked like her walked by and I thought that was Lenore <laughs> Zahn. I was like, Lenore, Lenore! But it wasn't. I'm sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, they, I think, like... Ju- and I'm, I do not remember the name of the voice actress for Storm, but those three are, like, the ones that are just in my head. Um, Iona Morris. Okay, I just had to look it up. But... Um, so I think they come, I don't want to say easily because then someone's going to be like, but you suck at it. But like they, they come more easily, I think. Uh, the one that's most fun and most bittersweet to write though is Beast because I love the version of Beast who's kind of like the cool college professor. <laughs> and I think his journey over the past 20 years has been really interesting from like a narrative standpoint but it's also heartbreaking to revisit who Beast used to be. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're a, a completely morally bankrupt jerk hole now, um, but you were like the, the fun college guy back then. <laughs> Please talk you, smack about Beast. Yeah. This, <laughs> but you, you're right. You go from like fun teacher Beast to head of the mutant CIA and like, <laughs> like black body bags and stuff. And it's, it's, it's a journey. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating, and I think Ben is doing such cool work in X-Force and in, in Wolverine, and it's just one of those times where it's hard to separate, like, what is good for a story and good for a character is often not nice to a character, yeah. and I think, you know, time has not been nice to Hank McCoy, <laughs> um, but, you know, we get to go and read all those old stories whenever we want, and, you know, I was a huge fan of Cat Beast and all of that, so he's he's been through the ringer, and he's been through some very interesting eras, and I'm sure in five or ten years, you know, he'll he'll be a completely different Hank McCoy yet again. 
was there anyone else you ever considered to be in that Moira role? And and for folks at home, if you haven't read X-Men 92, stop what you're doing, go pick up those issues because <laughs> yeah. it's so much fun and it's so good. But in it, it is revealed that Jubilee is actually the Moira character here and she has been living multiple lives. So was it always going to be Jubilee or did you have someone else in mind? It wasn't always going to be Jubilee. So when I first pitched it, and I mean, I think this is probably fine to say, but when I first pitched it, it was Morph. Um, I was because, about to say Morph. I was about to say Morph. But because there are some nuanced legalities, that version of Morph is tied to the cartoon. Um, you know, that, that character in the comics is Changeling. I could have had Changeling with the weird purple helmet. I could have had white-faced Morph from the Exiles. But Sunken Eyes, uh, you know, Trickster Morph is, is a creation of the cartoon. Um, so that was the very first pitch. And then Jordan and I spent some time really discussing who would fit the role. And we went through a number of options. We talked about maybe being Strife. We talked about it being um, like Rachel Summers. And this would be the first time she showed up. And uh, he, he even mentioned maybe it could be... Um, President Kelly, so it's like a, an ally, a human ally revealed. But to me, it was important in a comic book science way to be able to justify the power. And with Morph, it was like, okay, you know, the whole world changes with him. Like you kind of squint and see it. So with Jubilee, I realized, you know, fireworks are kind of like a very light version of the Big Bang. <laughs> like you have, you go all the way from tiny little explosions to the explosion that created the whole universe. So that was enough of an inroad to me to build on. And Jubilee is so indicative of the 90s. Like I was saying earlier, she's so tied to the era that it just made the most sense to have someone who is kind of the face of the animated series. Like I think if you talk about X-Men the animated series, the two characters that are maybe more tied to the cartoon than they are to the comics are Morph and Jubilee. Like they're just so attached to that, that aesthetic. Um, and it was just fun. It was a big change because instead of an experienced scientist, you have a, a preteen girl who's a mall rat and is sassy and talks back to, to Charles and Magneto. Um, and that's funny when it's a, a teenager instead of a grown woman. <laughs> Well, I mean, the fact that a 90s mall rat is at the epicenter of all the chaos and rebirth <laughs> in the universe. I mean, it makes perfect sense for me. So I I, I, I saw, I, I didn't see the power thing until now. I know in this issue, she does mention like, you know, big bang, bang, it's over. And like, I see the powers there. But for me, I thought the thought process was exactly what you just said from a narratology perspective. She is emblematic of 90s X-Men. She was that surrogate for it. So, of course, the universe will begin and end with her. The story quite literally <laughs> began with her. She is who we're supposed to bond with as an audience when, when, the, when the series kicks off. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, too, is like everyone, everyone who has seen any of the animated series has seen Night of the Sentinels. So Jubilee is the entryway to the cartoon. Um, so it just felt like it felt very right. And, and in the end, I'm glad it was her over Morph, who I think would have been interesting, but a little too inside baseball. Yeah, because he is a character with so little comics history. Particularly, you were saying Jubilee is very like it's the zeitgeist of like the 90s. And you get like you can go see Tiffany 
performing in the mall and then also like the universe restarts and no i just i as like a child of the 90s i i love that um but like what what was it like in sort of like a broader scale just like translating like the krakoa story and all that's going on to the 90s so the tough thing was i didn't want to get bogged down and like trying to make you know, culturally specific references. Like, of course, there are some jokes like that to the early 90s, but it's also, you know, it's 2022 now. I don't want to assume everyone who reads this has a vivid memory of, you know, what songs or actors or whatever were popular in 1992. So I didn't want to date it in that way. Part of the job fell to Salva because he was interpreting designs from the, you know, the 2019 Krakoa to a, a more simplified cartoon influence style. Um, and part of it was just kind of freezing the franchise in amber because the thing, the catch to doing this is that on Krakoa in the main line, almost any mutant can show up and they can wear any outfit they've ever had. So even just aesthetically, this really had to feel different than seeing Jean show up in her X-Factor outfit or Rogue show up in her classic outfit. Like it had to really be frozen at 1992. Um, but I think some of it just comes through too on having that main cast foregrounded because even though all these characters continue to play big roles in the comics, when was the last time we saw a ton of interaction between Beast and Gambit or Rogue and Storm? or even Cyclops and Wolverine. It's been a couple years since these seven characters and Professor X have really held down the, the center point of the line because other characters have come and, and kind of gained prominence and they've split off into other books. So I found that just keeping that cast together already made it feel substantially different from the 616 version. So my next question for you is going to be a Wanda related question <laughs> because she does appear in one panel here with Apocalypse. So is Wanda a muted in this continuity given it's before 92? I will say in this continuity, she is not not a muted. Okay, that's fair. for sure. Fair. I'm wow. sorry. That's a gotcha question. I should not ask. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I mean, listen, there was no pushback. I was just like, hey, I want to have Pietro and Wanda because in 1992 they were mutants. And Jordan was like, you're sure right they were. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there they go. They get to be on Krakoa. And um, they were in the animated series too. So there's really, there was no hurdle to jump for that. Um, I don't think it's something that Marvel is particularly pressed about. Everyone kind of <laughs> understands what happened. Um but yeah, no, I mean, I as a kid, I loved seeing those characters appear in the X-Men books because they felt kind of like the the guest stars, like the on a on a sitcom, like the cousin who shows up. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. it's like you're not really X-Men, but you are sometimes. And uh, I also was like the perfect age for Age of Apocalypse to be the coolest thing in the world. So seeing Quicksilver. You're in the right company right here. Yeah. yeah. So seeing Quicksilver on the team, I was like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> so I had to throw them in there. And, and thankfully, Marvel had absolutely no issue with that. What was your favorite Age of Apocalypse book? Uh, the Storm one was Amazing X-Men, right? Yeah. Or am I getting yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah. That's, I mean, that that's next on our so list good. to hit. We're so excited for it. Yeah, that squad's just so good. 
And that was, was, was that Qbert drew that one? Yeah, I, it, yeah. It, yeah, it was Qbert. It's we, we love Age of Apocalypse. That's one of the reasons why we've dedicated this entire season to it because it was such a vibe. And we were of that right age where you saw those books come out and you were like, oh my God, what are they doing? Like, this is a new status <laughs> quo forever, you know? And it was during like that wild storm, you know, like insane comic, you know, industry boom. And it was a lot of fun, but I'm sorry. We can, we can, we'll have you back on to discuss AOA <laughs> for another and, time. Well, without giving too much away, if you like Age of Apocalypse, uh, keep an eye peeled for the rest of X-Men 92. Oh, uh, because there might, might be something from Age of Apocalypse that influenced the book. I don't know who can say. Okay. Okay. We're, we're done. <laughs> okay. We will not press you anymore for that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we could cut that question. What can you tease? Yeah. Um, did, so, like, when you were when you were planning all of this, did like former X Men '92 writer Chris Sims like give you any advice? Did you talk to him? He actually did reach out. He emailed me. It was very sweet of him to do so. Uh, less advice than like, hey, you know, I, I heard you're doing this. I worked on this. It was a ton of fun. Good luck. And um, he also thought House of XCII was very funny, which oh, yeah. I did not even realize. I put that on the pitch and I, I did not know they were going with it until the first cover was out. <laughs> I was like, oh, you guys used it. Cool. <laughs> like, Thanks for the heads up there. As, 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 you know, a gay man, I saw it and I was just like, Charlie X-Men, Charlie XCX. I was like, this is wild. <laughs> that has cracked me up. I've also, uh, I, I've done a couple interviews where people like don't, don't understand it's Roman numerals. <laughs> and so they're like, what does XCII or XC11 mean? Bless their hearts. Listen, I had to like quadruple check it because I was like, if this goes out and someone is like, you idiot, that's not how you do Roman numerals for 92. <laughs> I was right. like, but I think quit, if you quit see that, in shame. <laughs> but if you see, I may not, I don't know how to spell out, even know reading the book, how you do it in Roman numerals, but like I knew it was Roman numerals. Like, you know. I mean, uh, to me, it's been a very funny like i mean i don't want to say it's purely funny because it has a purpose but it is funny to me that the main line uh has gone back and forth on whether it's x or 10 for different things so it's like you just gotta guess and find out each time yeah scott and i always have like the wrong one we're like 10 deaths of wolverine x deaths of wolverine (laughs) chris sims actually Actually... calls us power of 10 men (laughs) (laughs) wait is it is it x deaths of wolverine or 10 deaths (laughs) um, I thought it was 10 deaths. I feel like Jordan commented once and like, but I, you tell us. We, yeah, yeah, we've I, largely I, avoided that by just referring it to it as deaths. <laughs> I, I think that's going to be my method too. Great books. I just, you're on, the, are you, you're on the X-Men Slack. Just ask. I'm not, I'm like, <gasps> the, I'm a cousin. I'm like a, I'm, I'm one of those guest stars. <laughs> that's hateful. I'm sorry. You're not on the I, X-Men Slack. No, Hey, I mean, I barely use discord or Slack or any of those technologies. So I'm, I'm the Pietro of the X-Men Slack. I just run in once in a while to do something. <laughs> so we have a section dedicated just for you in today's episode called true or false where we're gonna ask you some (laughs) some pretty salty x-men animated series questions okay and you can respond by saying true or false you can elaborate if you want or if you don't want to it's fine it's fine so i'll kick us off with kitty pride should have been on the x-men animated series 
true or false? Ooh, false, but with no disrespect to Kitty. I feel that's her time. Yeah. And Larry Houston was saying that the reason why they decided not to use Kitty was because at the time, the the perception was Pride of the X-Men had tanked. Yeah. And they didn't want to use that character. And and that makes me really sad. It would have been fun to see like a little Excal moment. Um, like maybe the full, you know, Excalibur team show up in just one thing. But I think ultimately Kitty probably would have had a storyline like um, Bobby got where it's like, oh, he's like an old X-Man. Now he's back. Like, I, don't, I think her role was, was well filled on the cartoon. Are we going to see a version of Kitty? <laughs> no, there's no. Listen, I'm proud to continue saying no to you, but there is okay. no Kitty Pride. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember if we asked that question before. <laughs> That was one I'm of the still first, harping on Nate Gray. <laughs> that was one of the first questions. Some, you know, sometimes when you do these books, you get people who are very passionate and they, you know, they message you on Instagram and Twitter and everything else. And there was one very passionate Kitty Pride fan who really wanted to see Kitty. I was like, go read Marauders. <laughs> like, she's well represented. She's just not in my five issues. Although how amazing would it be if she came out in her X-Men Pride, Pride of the X-Men look <laughs> in your book, like Elizabeth Shue? <laughs> In Adventures in Babysitting Hair, like that would be iconic. I mean, <laughs> I, I love Kitty. She's just not showing up in my book. <laughs> All right. Good throw to Scott for the next one. Um, we we kind of touched this before, but like true or false, the animated series is the only tolerable version of Beast. False because I am the cat beast truther. Oh, yes, we that. did love that. Shout out to Morrison and their incredible new X-Men run. I love that run so much. I reread it like every other year. Same. And and I'm a huge, I'm a crazy Gene stan. I love Gene dead in the white hot room operating <laughs> on a cosmic level. I, I really think they made a really good point as to why Scott and Emma should be together. I mean, Gene was becoming more and more godlike and Scott was becoming more human and he gravitated towards one of the more deeply feeling people at, at the Xavier Institute. And that was Emma, who on the surface people think is just a bitch, but is actually a deeply feeling individual who cares about the next generation of mutants. So they made so much more sense to me than how Scott and Gene now make sense to me. That makes sense. Yes. It does make sense. And I'm right there with you. And as salacious as, as that plot line could have been, I think it actually handled all aspects with a lot of respect and didn't, I mean, it did literally bury Gene, but it didn't uh, metaphorically bury Gene to get Scott and Emma as the end game. Gene was in the white hot room operating on a cosmic level and at the epicenter. <laughs> uh, she reset at the timeline. She pushed them to be together. As far as I'm concerned, Gene was a hero of New X. <laughs> and that baby was, of course, Gene. But we're not going to talk about baby Spalding on this episode right now. <laughs> Sorry. Scott's like tired of me. No, I mean, you, you, like, you'd think that Hope Summer's like sponsored the show with the amount of time that you. <laughs> <laughs> SeanCody.com and Baby Spalding <laughs> Okay, speaking of Jean, our god queen Jean Grey fainted so much Because she was hypoglycemic True or false? <laughs> uh, abstain Because the, the angriest comments I got When the book was announced Were people already assuming That Jean was going to be useless In my book and were mad at me about it This was when the book was announced And a cover was out 
people skipped all the steps straight to being mad at what they assumed gene doesn't faint in my book (laughs) gene does not faint you heard it here uh confirmed canon gene does not faint in these five issues let let me apologize she catches someone else who faints Let me apologize on behalf of all the Gene stands. I used to, <laughs> I used to post on Shades of Grey, Gene Grey in the early two thousands. I w- I know I was crazy. I was a crazy Gene stand. I'm sorry. Gene is actually this issue in particular, issue two. I mean, she's right there on the flower with Wolverine. Oh yeah, Salva really took that into a. Uh, uh, representational image in a way that I really got a kick out of. It reminded me of Poison Ivy in Batman and Robin where Robin comes and she's like on the Venus flytrap. I mean, it was just, it was such a hot scene without it being hot, if that makes sense. Cause she's just like, Oh, dur, I got called to the inner circle. Bah. And just like flies away. (laughs) But I was like, damn, that was hot. All credit to Salva on that one. <laughs> All right. Next one to Scott. Um, true or false. You hear Lenore Zan's voice every time you read Rogue in a comic. Completely true. She, ever, ever since I was a child, she has been Rogue in my head. And there are some runs that as much as I love the voice actors, they don't fit the same way. Like, you know, I'm not going to read the Morrison run and necessarily hear the animated voice cast. Lenore Zahn has literally always been rogue and always will be. Wolverine stole that photo of Gene and Cyclops from a scrapbook Cyclops secretly made. <laughs> Absolutely true, except it's not a secret. He tries to show everyone else all the time. People get very sick of it. <laughs> I What was the shady thing that Brian Singer did to Cyclops in the Mazda and X2? Where they turn it on and it's Cyclops' car and they're listening to NSYNC. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Cyclops loves NSYNC and is making scrapbooks. He's like a Y2K kid. <laughs> I forget. Did the version of issue two I, I sent you have the data pages? No, I didn't see the data pages. Okay. Yeah. So in issue two, because this will come out once issue two is out, right? Yep. 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 We'll air it next week. So the data pages in every issue are different the design team has really gone above and beyond to make really fun visuals and one of them in issue two is a mixtape that um, boom boom and whiz kid have made to represent every member of the inner circle and uh cyclops's song is a little bit of a dig at him wait wait you actually did include it here hang on it's okay yeah achy breaky heart by pillow ray cyrus yeah, I had to give him like the cringiest song I could from what was hot in 1992. So he's just over there being a lovesick country boy thinking about Gene. God, it doesn't matter what timeline he finds himself in. He has like terrible taste in music. <laughs> and I say that as a full Scott stan. He's always been one of my favorites. I have a tattoo of him. Uh, all respect to him. But yes, terrible taste in music. We, we are big stans here of Scott. <laughs> we I, believe I, Cyclops was right here. He was always I, right. I identified with him because he was kind of a stick in the mud who wanted to follow the rules and, you know, be the, the good son and the good student so in in the 90s he was my boy wolverine was too edgy for me okay but for our god queen you gave her the song stronger together featuring Daz by dazzler featuring Cher and lila cheney what yes. the fuck 
I would love to be at that concert. I know. And you know Cher would be the first one to collaborate with a mutant pop star. She would be out there waving whatever mutant pride flag they came up with. She's always on the right side of history. We love we love our Cher. <laughs> She's and, the only one who got a fictional song because obviously <laughs> Cher and Dazzler had to show up on there. The original Dazzler movie, wasn't Cher supposed to be in it? Oh, was she really? Yeah. I actually didn't even know that. That's amazing. Yeah, though. Look at that. I, I completely forgot that Wizkid is that old of a character too. He's he's in like Inferno and yep. like, yeah. Yeah, he shows up early and he appears on the animated series. Oh, that's right. right. He is. That's right. Real oh, in the Cyclops stage. episode. Uh in the Purple Man episode. Yeah. Episode. Yeah. 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 Wow. Oh man. Good. Good things. <laughs> okay. True or false. Evil morph is better than good morph. True. Those under eye bags are really a look. <laughs> that, that's that's actually my Twitter. Um, the header picture is just morphs like eyes because it's just like I I, I get it morph like you're yeah. really tired. <laughs> well, it's amazing too because either you read it as him being like dead tired, or he got upset and just smeared mascara <laughs> under his eyes to feel something. And and either way, that's very relatable. Yeah. True or false. Storm would never take the monorail. False. She'll she'll meet you at the monorail. Real, okay. Well, fine. Like I think if she <laughs> says it, she'll she's a woman of her word, so she will be there. But I can, also can't picture her taking a monorail by herself. Like, can you imagine? I mean, monorails were big in the nineties. There's a whole <laughs> Simpsons episode about it. Epcot was new. Monorails yeah. were the shit. Can I say that? Yes, of course. Monorails oh, yeah. were the shit. <laughs> monorail. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I I was on another podcast and we were singing another Simpsons song. It was a Mr. Burns song of like, uh, see my vest, see my vest oh, made yeah. from real gorilla's chest. chest. See this hat twas my cat, my evening wear vampire bat. Sorry. I'm like singing. I mean, as a time. vegan, it's both horrifying and catchy to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And our final one, Scott. Uh, true or false. You were excited as fuck for X-Men 97 completely true and i am very glad i know nothing about it the double-edged sword of working in these media is that you often find out stuff i mean i know stuff that's not going to happen at marvel for like two years and it's still exciting but it's great to to get to come to something fresh and just be surprised we're so excited and bo de mayo who is obviously spearheading has been so kind on Instagram, has reached out to everyone and such a good vibe. And we know the Lee Walds and Larry Houston are back and the the original voice actors. So we are so excited for that. Yeah. You know, a couple questions about you. Um, how did you start writing? I mean, I never really wanted to do anything else. Uh, I, I went from like wanting to be a zoologist to wanting to be a writer. Like, you know, every kid wants to be a zoologist or a marine biologist or an astronaut. And it was zoology for me. And then when I was around 12, I learned that that meant like, you know, either working at a zoo or spending time in the jungle and outside and stuff. And neither one of those sounded great to me. So uh, at first I wanted to be a journalist. That was kind of like a, a big era for spin magazine and ap and rolling stone and that all see it because it was like pre blogs taking off and, and you know certainly pre-social media so it felt like such a cool 
edgy career to have. Um, but by the time I, I was ready to go to college, I knew that I just wanted to write fiction and I wanted to work in comics in some capacity. Um, so I was very, very focused from the start. And my first publication ever, um, Top Cow did a talent hunt and I submitted a Witchblade script that was chosen. And um, I won that the same year that Teeny Howard won it. And we've been best friends ever since. And um, Isaac Goodhart was one of the artist winners and we are very close friends. He does a lot of work for DC. Uh, and Phil CV was one of the runner ups and, and he's a good friend of mine too. And he just launched a, an original series with Teeny. Okay, I love the fact that Mark Silvestri and Renee Gearlings probably saw your Witchblade story <laughs> and selected you as a I love Top Cow. So I got an internship at Top Cow when I was in college. I didn't end up doing it, sadly. But that's been my biggest regret because I thought they were such a one. They had Hunter Killer. They had oh, Cyber yeah. Force. I love Midnight Nation is my favorite indie comic ever. Oh, wow. So much. Yeah. That really, I just am like flashing back to Wizard Magazine features on it. I used to, I used to work at Wizard. I wrote at Wizard. Wow. Yeah, back in 06. We are dating ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) It's got like, I wasn't even born then. (laughs) Okay. So, what's the difference between writing comics and kids' books? Like, how's your approach different? So I think that kids deserve not to be written down to. So the only thing I really change is, you know, when I do something like Party and Pray or stuff for Razorblades, you can swear and have graphic sex and horrible violence. And I'm not going to put that in a Smurfs book. Um, But beyond that, I, I honestly don't approach them that differently. And one thing that doing the kids work has helped me with, I think, is um, brevity and, and being concise because oftentimes for, uh, a lot of the younger kids stuff, there are very stringent rules on how long the text can be, even down to the character, like, you know, one spread can have 36 characters per line or whatever. And writing to that kind of constriction does help you think about things on a sentence by sentence level. Um, but also to me, it's just kind of, I say that's my day job, which is not to like put any slight toward it, but you know, when I'm thinking of like what my career is going to be, I'm not necessarily thinking about level one step into reading books. (laughs) Like they're very fun. I think it's a real kick to work on licenses like Pokemon and Mario and and my little pony. Um, But they're my day job (laughs) compared to the comics work I get to do. Well, as, as like a follow-up to that, as like sort of like 80s, 90s kids, like what was your like favorite like like series or like stuff like were you like a goosebumps guy? Or, oh yeah. yeah. So outside of comics, you mean? Yeah. Uh, I did like goosebumps, but I was very afraid of scary things when I was a kid. So it really kind of shifted for me when I was a preteen. Um, I read Books of Blood by Clive Barker and like never looked back. But as a kid, I was terrified. And I, I would watch Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark and have nightmares for days. I'm still traumatized by the silver episode where the girl has to get like a silver spoon for that demon. Like <laughs> from Are You Afraid of the Dark? And what was her name? Oh, Rachel? Are You Afraid of the Dark is scary. Like it was they, a like, they, they scary not, series. Yeah, they didn't pull their punches. There's an episode... Uh, that I still think about that involved like a 
some weird ghoul in the school pool. I didn't realize that sentence was going to rhyme. So much when I started it. <laughs> um, but there's like a monster in the pool and it, it was really pr- in, in my memory, maybe I'm embellishing it, but it was pretty horrific looking. And now every time I go swimming, I, I still think about that thing. I Rachel Blanchard, I believe was mm. on the show and she would go on to play share in the clueless TV show. <laughs> and every time I saw her, I would just remember, are you afraid of the dark? And I had lots of panic attacks as a kid. So I would just think about exactly like you, I would just think of it and legit be scared. I don't know why are you afraid of the dark was able to air next to Clarissa explains yeah. it all <laughs> and the adventures of Pete and Pete, but like there it was. And it was legit terrifying. The, the Tia and Tamara episode. Do you remember that one by any chance? No. Where one of them, like they're obviously twins and <laughs> one is a bad twin and, you know, a big fight happens and it's like, oh, the good twin wins. But then at the end, you find out it was a bad twin and she mocks like the the good twin. And I remember that was the first time I ever digested a narrative like that. And I was traumatized. Like I still picture, picture the scene in my head. But to fully answer the question too, though, I mean, I was jacked into anything Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon and and Fox Saturday mornings did throughout the 90s. And I feel very grateful to have lived through like that renaissance of cartooning. So my boyfriend grew up mostly in the Philippines as a kid. He was born here, moved there for 10 years and then came back. So he kind of missed the 90s. Um, And I was showing him a compilation on YouTube of like animated series openings and he's like, wow, this was like all real animation. I was like, yeah, we used to do that. You <laughs> <laughs> used to have to draw the cartoons. <laughs> like, you know, not to diminish everything gets, that gets made today, because obviously lots of talented people work on it. But in the 90s and late 80s, it was such a renaissance of, of cartoons. And from like SWAT Cats to Street Sharks to Rocco's Modern Life to, you know, Ren and Stimpy and all that stuff made such an impact on me as a kid. And now I guess that filters into stuff like Spider-Ham. Wait, what was your favorite opening, your cartoon, favorite cartoon opening? It, you know, I'm not being funny. It was X-Men. It's yeah. just so iconic. Um, and then Batman. I think Batman's opening is like the best Batman movie. <laughs> just the opening credits is like the best Batman movie. Um, but I will say, honestly, I didn't appreciate Batman as much as a kid. It was a little mature for me mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and I think that that's one that's aged so well. Oh, yeah. Um, because it, it was just kind of geared towards slightly more sophisticated kids than I was in 1994. Were you excited when you got to write Justice League Saves Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got a huge kick out of that one. Um, And actually, it got delayed an entire year because of the pandemic. Because um, So in the book publishing world, stuff that's tied to a holiday actually goes on sale over two months before. And if you miss that window, there's really no point in doing it. So the delay was going to mean that the book wasn't going to ship until December when it really had to go on sale before Halloween. Yeah. Because you don't get your pickups at the tables. You don't get to hype the indies. So they're like, well, we're just going to hold it for an entire year. I was like, great can't wait <laughs> so i should finally be getting books in in a couple months and I, I can't wait to see that it's a very cute story and you know so far one of my few chances to write dc characters so just uh getting my kicks through kids books instead of the comics well i'm trying to indoctrinate my nieces and nephews so they're all getting a copy <laughs> <laughs> thank you it's it's very adorable and one of my goals was to write a kid's book for like each holiday 
Uh, so getting to check off Christmas with the Justice League was was a nice one. Yeah, that's pretty epic. You have a really great career, just sidebar. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you have I, a really ideal career. I mean, thank you. I told my philosophy, and I was talking to Tini about this earlier, is I expect nothing and I'm grateful for everything. And Love that, that. Hasn't, hasn't really failed me yet. Well, you, um, you mentioned Spider-Ham before briefly. Like, uh, what was it? Like, how did that come about? Like, Spider-Ham in Hollywood? Yeah, so well, so that's the second one, actually. The first one's already out. That's um, Spider-Ham in Great Power, No Responsibility. <laughs> and it came about, uh, actually, because of uh, the nice networking of, of gays and comics, originally. <laughs> um, when I was at Pace Magazine, I interfaced with um, a guy named Mike Mochio, who at the time was working for Diamond Comics Distributors, and he was coordinating Free Comic Book Day. And he went on to work for Boom!, and when he was at Boom, he remembered me and got me on a Steven Universe story, which was a lot of fun. And then he moved over to Scholastic. And when they were casting for Spider-Ham, he threw my name in the ring, even though he didn't work in editorial. Um, so in a very roundabout way, you know, Paste and Diamond led to me doing Spider-Ham. And I used to say before, you know, I'd, that was the first thing I ever did related to Marvel. And it had always been a goal of mine to do something for Marvel. I grew up a Marvel kid. I'm still a Marvel kid in my 30s. And I used to say, like, I just don't think I could ever do Spider-Man because I'm not funny. And then the first opportunity I got was the more comedic version of Spider-Man. So there was definitely some terror, uh, but it ended up being so much fun. And I got to collaborate with Shadia Min, who is very talented. Um, She just brought everything up a notch from my script and they liked it and they invited us back for more. Hollywood Mayhem comes out this fall, I think, early fall. And might not be the last you see of, of me and Shadia in the Spider-Ham universe. Who knows? And, and you mentioned this earlier. Spider-Ham is what gave you the launch pad for the X-Men because Jordan had read it and reached out to you after you had interned with him like a decade ago. Yeah, so it wasn't a, a straight nepotism hire because I still had, to, <laughs> still had to do the work. You had to still age. Had to, you still had to... Uh, put in put in the hours and put in the pages but yeah he read Spider-Ham and thought it would be a good fit and you know X-Men 92 it's it's not a comedy book like I'm not just taking the piss out of it but obviously there's some winking and nodding going on heavily because you know it's an anniversary tribute to the 90s like you you have to have a little fun with it um, while telling an actual story and I think Spider-Ham is more comedic than 92 but he thought it would it would translate so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Okay, I have to ask, though, because you also did write a Zelda adventure book, <laughs> and I am a huge Legend of Zelda fan. Are you a big fan? I am, um, but I would say they reached a point in my life where, like, I had to choose writing or playing video games, <laughs> and I, like, just don't have as much time, so... My familiarity with Breath of the Wild is pretty low. But if you want to talk Majora's Mask and, and Ocarina of Time, I'm We've right there with you. have been met with an untimely fate. <laughs> Just a consistent uh, uh, ability to disappoint you is, is what I'm bringing to this podcast. Oh my God, not at all. <laughs> no Nate Gray, no Breath of the Wild, no Kitty Pride. Scott, who do you like? Who can I not include from my I book? mean, I mean, cha- like you already kick chamber out so we're chamber's gone Dakin doesn't (laughs) exist north stars in like one panel 
Oh my god, Suck but that it, was guys. the best. <laughs> but that was the best panel of this issue. I DM'd you when I saw that. I was like, bless <laughs> you. Can I tell you two very funny things about that panel? One, yes. first thing I wrote for the entire series that really? was in my really? pitch was the gay joke about Bobby. Um, and so for readers who don't know what I'm talking about, in issue number two, there's a panel where Rogue is on the boat and behind her are Iceman, Richter, Shatterstar, Northstar, and for the bears, Grizzly. Uh, and <laughs> I had included that in the initial pitch uh, where Gambit's jealous of Rogue on this boat with all these boys. And she's like, you know, let me remind me to tell you one time why Bobby and Lorna never worked out. Because <laughs> obviously the cartoon was not going to uh, delve into sexuality in 1992 on, on Saturday mornings, but I knew I needed to throw, throw some red meat to the gaze. I heard Lenore Zan in that panel. Like, I always hear her, but like in that specific, like, <laughs> but Sugar, let me tell you why Bobby and Lorna didn't work out. I can't do Lenore Zan. No, like, well, no one can because she has that crack. Like, it's it's not just designing women. There's like a yeah. vocal crack that's like so, so like, good and so specific to her. She described it on the podcast once. She's like husky, tough, something like that. She also used the exact same voice when she did Caldina on one of my favorite animes, Magic Knight Ray Earth. And I had no I, idea. I watched, I wore those VHSs out. As oh, yeah, she so was Caldina. Funny. She's oh she credited as Zan. And I had a whole section of the outline dedicated to her work on Ray Earth. <laughs> and she's like, Sugar. Can you remind me again? Like, <laughs> which one was that? What was that? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, but you credit yourself as Zan, and I knew it was you because I was like Lenore Zan, same voice. She goes, "Well, you're very clever, aren't you?" <laughs> <laughs> well, so the other funny story about that panel is, it, you know, in the foreground is Rogue, and I sent that panel to Tini as like, look at my little, you know, I got all the gays together on one panel, and she was like, uh, and Rogue's huge knockers, and I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, did you not notice this? And I was like, nope, I'm very gay. <laughs> I did not even notice. I'm gonna tell well, you. I mean, you had some, yeah, you had something for the gay man and the lesbians. You yeah, covered it's, all your- <laughs> it's there for everyone, and uh, actually. So someone that, because the previews for those pages went out, someone took just that screenshot and posted it on Twitter and it got like 4,000 likes and people retweeting it with all number of um, colorful comments. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I'm going to touch this one, but uh, hope, hope some of you guys check out the book. <laughs> I honestly did not notice her boobs in this. I it's, feel It's really a Kinsey test all, all of its own. It's, that's hysterical, <laughs> hey. B, it also reminds me that in X-Men Legends 2, Wanda's character design, she was she had big bosoms as well. <laughs> and everyone was commenting on it. And I was like, still don't even notice. Like, did not, never even. I felt, I felt like a little guilty after I saw the panel out of context. But then I was yeah. watching X-Men the Animated Series the other night. Uh, and I was watching like a rogue-focused fo- episode when you like first get the flashback. And like she falls at one point, and at, you know every curve, yeah. yeah, every curve the of her butt is outlined. I was like, okay, if if, you, if we could do it on Saturday morning cartoons, I think it's okay for the day. <laughs> We're all adults here. Steve, you have been such a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Do you have anything you can tease? I mean, you've teased so much already. Anything Ooh, you can tease? Any yeah. upcoming projects? What, 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 what can you tell us? Let me think about it for a second. First off, thank you for having me. This was a ton of fun. Of course. 
what I can tease in X-Men 92, we've now seen the solicits. So we know issue three is going to be my, our take on X of Swords. And it's an X in this universe. It's not a 10. It's not 10 of Swords. Uh, there are no tarot cards in this one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and that's giving you like the, the if you thought 10 of Swords was going to be a fighting game, uh, a fighting video game, this is that issue. Thank you so yes. much. I love Ten of Swords. It, I think it was so clever and so cool and so expansive, but I got 20 pages to do it, so I went Mortal Kombat. I, uh, I said this on the podcast before. I wanted Ten of Swords, those last like issues, instead of it being a little bit more zany and clever, I wanted straight up Mortal Kombat. Listen, I wanted fatalities and everything. I love what we got, but if you wanted that, X-Men 92 issue three. Um, issue four is the gala. We had a ton of fun dressing everyone up in their 90s prom looks. Uh, and then issue five is our version of Inferno, which is going to play out very differently based on some people you see in issue three. Okay. Um, you know, if you remember from Ten of Swords, resurrection doesn't always go as planned. So. Okay. We'll We're really excited. And then as far as stuff outside of 92, um, Archer and Armstrong Forever is, is going strong. Issue two will be out next month. That book is a ton of fun to work on. Um, I have a original horror series coming out early next year that I can't wait to get to talk about. Spider-Ham 2 comes out this fall. Uh, and then might not be the last of me you see at Marvel. Oh, we love that. So keep love an it. eye out on your on your um, comic stands and on your digital devices. Well, thanks, sugar. The age of apocalypse is now over, and we'll see you next time. The age of apocalypse is over. For now. <laughs>